So one of the main ways the Bible speaks to us is through stories. And this makes total sense because much of the way we come to understand our own lives is through stories. The stories of our family, the way we grew up, how we came to be who and where we are. And all our stories, uh, all of us in here, our stories are a mixed bag. Good and bad experiences. And we're shaped by both of those. By the good and the bad. Now one of the main ways the Bible works is by telling us stories and inviting us into them. It tells stories of people and places in the same way all of us tell our stories with people and places at the center of them. And the, and the stories the Bible tells, they're always a mixed bag in the same ways that our stories are. They're people with good and bad. Even the Bible's heroes, outside of Jesus himself, are deeply, they're deeply flawed people. But they're not ever condemned. Now, at the same time, Scripture does have this way of telling us stories of people whose flaws reach these kind of tragic proportions. It's as if the writers of these stories were able to look back on the lives of some people, people whose lives ended tragically, and they're able to identify a moment in time where things went terribly wrong, where they made a decision, and as if it was irretrievable at that point. Their life was going to end and continue, continue and end on this sad trajectory. And when they tell a story like this, they invite us into tragedy as a means of warning. Now, this is something we're going to see in the story today. The Bible doesn't relish in telling us sad stories. That's not the point. Notice where God is in this story. God is grieving. God is grieving because of Saul's choices. The Bible isn't relishing in this, but it's inviting us into the tragedy as a means of warning. Now, Saul's life is like this, all of this. He's a mixed bag, like so many other characters in Scripture. He has good and bad. He's just like all of us, in a way. But Saul's weaknesses reach these epic proportions and his life becomes a tragedy, a warning sign. So this morning what we're going to do is look at Saul's life. We're, we're going to start by going back to where he's introduced in chapter 9. And we're going to get a snapshot of Saul prior to this scene. But we're going to then spend most of our time in the story that Stephanie just read to us. At the end, we're going to use this story to look at our own lives and to ask, what does this story have to say to us? Now, when you first meet Saul, you like him. All of us would. Women swoon at Saul, at Saul because he's tall and handsome. This is what we're told about him. He's a head taller than anybody else in Israel, and he is very handsome. Men are intimidated at first. But because Saul is as kind as he can be, he quickly wins everyone over. He has this amazing combination of both strength and humility. These qualities that are so rarely found together in a leader. 
he also looks like he's sensitive to God. And we're going to see this in some places. In his first test of leadership, there's this city in Israel that's being threatened by a foreign power. The city sends out word for help. And as soon as Saul hears about it, we're told that God's Spirit rushes on him. And in a burst of action, he rallies the people of Israel, leads them in battle, and delivers his brothers. Saul is this mighty warrior. Now, when news had first gotten out that Saul was going to be king, there were some who said in pride, will Saul reign over us? And after this first victory, some of his troops suggested that they go kill these people. All those people who resisted your leadership, let's go kill them. What does Saul say in response? He shuts it down immediately and he tells the people to celebrate God's deliverance. You can't beat this. From first appearances, Saul is an impressive leader. But as the years go by, Saul starts to show signs of weakness. And look, we all do. As we get closer to each other, we all see blemishes in each other. This is, this is life in a way. This is what it means to be human. But it's as if Saul's weaknesses are nurtured and they become these gaping holes in his character, the chinks in his armor. He became fearful and hesitant in battle to the point that his son, Jonathan, will show more initiative in battle than him. Then on other occasions, he's rash and power hungry. So, for instance, on one occasion, the Israelites have been in battle and the people were in this forest and the, the, the battle is not happening for this, these moments. And there's honey in this forest. But Saul had made a vow that anyone who ate before his enemies were defeated would be cursed. And the language is very uh, exalted of, of him. Before I defeat my enemies, no one shall eat. His son, Jonathan, who was bearing the real burden of leadership in the fight, hadn't heard his dad's vow. And he ate the honey. When Saul finds out about this, he tries to follow through on his vow and kill his own son until the people rise up and they tell Saul they will not have it. That God has used Jonathan to defeat the enemies. There are other stories like this that we don't have time to tell. Now, of course, none of these flaws had to be a death blow to Saul. They didn't have to be. The Bible accepts that people make mistakes. Even leaders make mistakes. But we can be redeemed from them. Here's the trouble. Saul isn't. Why is that? What is it that leads to Saul's downfall? And that's what our story today is about. Now, there's a key word in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that drives the whole story. And if you have your Bible, I hope you'll open it to 1 Samuel 15. And and I'm going to show you where this word occurs as a way of kind of walking through this story. The key word in it is the word listen. Notice it in verse 1. Samuel says to Saul, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. What is Saul supposed to listen to? The words of the Lord. Now, the words that God gives him here are difficult for us. The extermination of an entire people, innocent children, animals too. This is brutal. But we do need to know that this was normal warfare for the ancient world. So it might be tempting for us to say, well, it, it, was this Saul's problem? This was just too brutal for him? No. Because here's the thing. If you could spare anything in this list of people and things, what would you spare? Women? Children, animals. Who does Saul spare? Agag. A Hitler-esque leader of their evil. And what else? I mean, the animals. There are the animals. But Saul's not being a humanitarian. There are no women and children in this list that Saul saves. That is not the issue. That's not Saul's problem. Now, The second time we hear our key word, listen, is in verse 14. Samuel has arrived on the scene and Saul greets him saying, Blessed be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says in this classic note of sarcasm, actually as I hear him say this, I wish I could do it in a Scott Hansen Scottish accent. What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Now, it's been a few weeks, but there was another story earlier in Samuel where listen was a key word. And one of the things we learned is that in English, the words hear, listen, and obey, they're all different, right? Not one of them captures all the others. But in Hebrew, all these words are the same word, Shema. In one word, you do capture all three meanings, hear, Listen, obey. So when Samuel hears the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of oxen, that can only mean one thing. Saul hasn't listened to the words of the Lord. He hasn't obeyed the words of the Lord. So Saul's response to Samuel is telling. They have brought them from the Amalekites to sacrifice to God. But the rest, we have devoted to destruction. Notice the pronouns throughout Saul's responses. They are very important. Whose responsibility was it to do what God had said? God made it very clear. You, I have anointed king over Israel. You shall destroy the Amalekites utterly. There's no one else to blame, but Saul does. They brought them, he says, but it was for a good purpose. The only responsibility Saul's willing to share is for doing the right thing. We devoted the rest to destruction. Saul's willing to share the credit for doing right, but not the blame for doing wrong. Do you see this? Is this how a king should behave? Is this what it looks like to be a leader? Samuel stops him. 
The Lord anointed you king over Israel, he says. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? There's our key word again in verses 18 through 19. Why didn't you listen, Saul? Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? Saul, never at a loss for words, we should see that at this point, he scrambles together another response. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission to which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agog the king and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Sheep, oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul tries to make the disobedience look innocent by inserting piety into the decision, doesn't he? We wanted to sacrifice them to God. Saul's now been given two chances to say, I was wrong. I sinned. I didn't listen. But both times he evades the issue and he makes excuses. So now Samuel is going to deal him the death blow. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying? There's our word again. The voice of the Lord. Notice it. Obeying, listening to the voice of the Lord. And Samuel keeps going. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. But instead of listening, Saul's evasive excuses are a form of rebellion. And so here Samuel says, Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. Now the final use of our key word is when Saul finally makes something of a confession. After the judgments come down, Saul says, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There it is. Saul's job was to listen and obey the voice of God, but he's listened to and obeyed the voice of people instead of God. Yet, even after his confession... In his last request of Samuel, Saul is still concerned with the way people see him. I know I've sinned, he says again. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Is this what you're worried about, Saul? That you'll be seen as respectable in the eyes of people after you've completely rejected God? You know, Saul never loses his belief in God. He is stubbornly religious. But he's become so fickle before God that he loses his anointing as king. He's going to continue for some years being king. Know this, 1 Samuel 15 is not the end of Saul's life, and that makes it even more sad in a way. He's going to continue for a long time being king, but his leadership is going to degenerate into a paranoid campaign to preserve his power. Instead of warring against Israel's enemies, he's going to war against people from within, his own son and his son's best friend. For the rest of his life, he's going to suffer bouts of what looks like mental illness. 
But you know what it really was? It was God's Spirit that used to empower him to make him an effective king that became to him something that tortured him. And we see similar cases of this through history, not just here in Scripture. People who live in rebellion against God lose their sanity. They lose their reason and their willpower. This is what happens to Saul. Saul's death years later is the ultimate tragic ending to a tragic life. He dies by falling on his own sword. I found it fascinating as Glenn was reading Hebrews 4 that God's word is this double-edged sword that pierces us. Saul would not allow himself to be pierced by God's word, and so instead, he's pierced by his own sword at the end of his life. This is a tragic ending. Before we move on, I want to highlight this one more time. The Bible doesn't relish in telling us stories like this, as if the tragedy is some dark form of entertainment. Uh, Travis tells me that he hates to watch movies that aren't for entertainment. Like, uh, watch movies to, to be entertained, not to be made more sad about life. This is one of those stories that it isn't about entertainment. God and Samuel, at the end of this story, are both in grief. God's prophet spends an entire night weeping. And every time the Bible speaks of God regretting something, it's when he's deeply saddened. When man, his most precious creation, has rebelled to the point of reaping his own destruction. God feels pain in this. He suffers from it. So now, what does this story say to us? Three points, quickly. First, listening is the most fundamental posture for being a human being. Listening is the most fundamental posture for being a human being. This was Saul's job, to listen to God. And this is our job, to listen to God. And this certainly applies to relationship with God, but it also applies to our relationships to each other. Think about the fact that one of the biggest problems in marriages is communication. And what that really means is that one or both partners have failed to listen to each other. You would think from all our forms of social media, news outlets, that the most important position for a person to be in is to be the one speaking. But these are only the result of us having not yet figured it out. Those platforms give us the opportunity to get a word in. And that's what we feel is most urgent most of the time. But what's actually more essential than being able to speak and more essential than getting a word in is being able to hear. To hear. And to hear not only with our ears, but with our heart. This is why listening in Hebrew can capture all these meanings. Listen, hear, obey. Because to hear really means to absorb with our inner life, our heart. So Saul uses his speech as a defense mechanism to avoid listening. 
This is the place a lot of us find ourselves in our marriages and with God. We fill up prayer or conversation and there's no room left for us to listen to someone or to listen to God. But it should be the opposite in that we should normally speak so that we can listen more. Speech being a tool so that we can then hear from another. So are you becoming a better listener? Or do you use words as a defense mechanism to avoid listening? To avoid absorbing what others say. This story is a warning that if you nurture that habit and if you let it go unattended, it will diminish your life. And at its worst, it will bring ruin to your life. So first, listening is the most fundamental posture to being a human being. Second, sin can be dealt with. In a way, we, not that it's not a big deal, but we can say sin can be dealt with. Not listening cannot be dealt with. This is crucial to this story. So David, the next king, is going to commit adultery and murder. But he's forgiven. He's a hero of the Bible, a man after God's own heart. What gives here? Saul could always claim the moral, higher moral ground over David on these issues. Well, at least I didn't have adultery and then kill the man, woman's husband. This story isn't just about morality. God is always a God who's willing to turn from his anger, willing to forgive. Here is what's different about from us uh, from Saul to David. When David is confronted with his sin, here's what he says. I've sinned against the Lord. That's it. I've sinned against the Lord. There are no speeches, no lengthy attempts at justification. There's no shifting of blame. I've sinned. Saul is only willing to make that confession after a judgment has already been made. And until that point, he reaches for every justification he can find. He takes credit, but he never takes blame. This is what's different between them. We talk in Christian circles about how no one is beyond God's reach. And this is true in a way. It is. God can redeem anyone. But it is possible to cut yourself off from God's grace by refusing to accept responsibility. When you do that, you court disaster. And there's only one direction that things can go. But again, if at any point we're willing to stop running, God is always willing to turn, always willing to show mercy. This is central to the way this story speaks to us. Sin can always be dealt with. Not listening cannot be. Lastly, for obedience, there is no substitute. For obedience, there is no substitute. I can still remember sitting in my apartment my last year of college. I was reading this story. I was in this relationship that on the one hand wasn't that bad, but on the other hand, in this way that I can't completely explain to you, it wasn't good. 
I had this vague sense that was the case. But I was a little like Saul, and I kept trying to give it to God, wrap it in piety. I was reading this story, and I came to this part. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. And I don't remember if I had to get to the next part. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And I cannot even explain it to you. It was as if all at once God sliced through all my confused justifications. And He brought this clarity that I couldn't argue with anymore. The obedience part was going to be tough. But from that moment, I knew what I had to do. And it would be good. The obedience would be good. You know, we we all have this habit of taking things we've been warned about and trying to make them good. We're a little bit like children trying to find out how far we can go and stubbornly seeking out our independence. Just a little bit, God. Give me just a little bit. obedience, less than being a joy-sucking legalism, is more like aligning ourselves with the grain of the universe. People might talk about obedience being difficult, but I have not heard anyone talk about regretting obedience. And the reason obedience comes without regret is because in it we find the most surprising thing. Love. Love. We discover our own love for God who's given us good commands. We discover that in obedience, we we do love Him. But even more than that, we discover God's love for us because God has been kind enough to show us the way to life. He's been kind enough to give us life, His life, and to fill us with joy. Hope, peace. It's this same jealous love that saddens God when we rebel. It's the same possessive love that drives Jesus to tears when He comes to the tomb of His friend Lazarus. Where death and evil have taken Him. And Jesus is driven to tears because of it. It's this same love that drives Jesus through tears to go to the cross. And it's this same love that drives Him to rise from the dead, to conquer sin and death for us, and to be kind of the... the, the what's the word I'm looking for? Mm, I can't find it. He's the one who goes before us. The one who discovers the way and then calls us to go on it with him. We're not going to find this love anywhere else. There's no substitute for obedience because there, there is no substitute for the love of God. Do you believe that you will find God's love on the way of obedience? That will actually be the most satisfying path that you can walk. That he will be there with you. 
It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.